Welcome to History Books and Wine, where three author friends talk about books and fun historical tidbits, all while raising a glass of vino. We're your hosts, Lori and Bailey, Eliza Knight, and Madeline Martin. So, pour a glass and enjoy the show. Welcome to Episode 6 of History, Books, and Wine, and thank you for joining me tonight. I'm Eliza Knight, your host. I am a USA Today bestselling author of Scottish historical romance with irresistible heroes, courageous heroines, and daring adventure. Under my name, E. Knight, I write rip-your-heart-out historical fiction that crosses the landscapes of Europe. Today, I'm going to be talking about two different historical figures that greatly fascinate me and who I've used in several of my stories, Elizabeth I of England and William Wallace of Scotland. But first, I'm going to tell you what I'm drinking tonight. My wine choice for tonight is a Dibon Cava Brut Rosé, a perfect choice for spring. Clear red and pinkish tones, small bubbles are gently released to form various strings that rise to the surface. It has a gentle fragrance with smells of fruits, raspberry, and black currant. It is very full in the mouth with a splendid bubbly sensation that fills the whole palate, has a long finish, and great elegance. That is from their website, and I have to greatly agree, it is very delicious, and a drink that I often choose in the spring and summer. Ladies first, so we shall start with Elizabeth I of England. I've long admired this woman for so many reasons, of which I will try to list here today, but there are really too many to name, so I'm hoping at some point in the future we'll be able to come back and visit again. Elizabeth was the daughter of Henry VIII and his second wife, Anne Boleyn. Madeline Martin will be speaking more on Henry VIII next week. When Elizabeth was just a little over two and a half years old, her mother was executed executed and the marriage annulled. This made Elizabeth illegitimate, the second child of Henry's to be declared so, as Elizabeth's older sister Mary had been declared illegitimate when Henry divorced her mother in order to marry Anne Boleyn. Elizabeth continued to retain her own household with a governess named Lady Bryan, but seemed to be more or less neglected by her father, as her governess felt obliged to write the king asking him to ensure Elizabeth was provided with clothes and that her current ones were too small. Lady Bryan was replaced a few years later with Catherine Champernoun, but Better known as Cat, nicknamed so by Elizabeth herself. Her new surname soon was Astley, so you will recognize her as Cat Astley. Elizabeth was provided a good education and retained relationships with both of her siblings, though her and Mary were not as close as her and Edward because of religious differences. Elizabeth was Protestant, as was Edward, and Mary was Catholic. When Henry married his fifth wife, Catherine Howard, Elizabeth was often invited to the Queen's chambers to play and was even given a place of honor beside the Queen while dining. However, their friendship was doomed, as Catherine was soon executed by Henry, which was devastating to Elizabeth. Robert Dudley, her dear friend, many of whom believed was her lover, had known her at this time and said when she was eight years old, she confessed to him that she would never marry. Growing up in a household such as Henry's, where wives were divorced and beheaded or simply died, as in Jane Seymour's case during childbirth, I can see where she might have determined marriage equaled death. Elizabeth's next stepmother, Catherine Parr, tried as hard as she could to include Elizabeth, even attempted to assuage the king when Elizabeth was banished from court 
by her father, who had deemed her offensive in some way. Elizabeth was with her brother Edward when they learned of their father's death. She was 13 at the time. Elizabeth then lived with her stepmother, Catherine Parr, the Dowager Queen, who married Thomas Seymour, the Lord Admiral of the young King Edward's household. While residing there, Sir Thomas took an unhealthy interest in Elizabeth and most definitely took advantage of any teenage feelings she might have returned. He would inappropriately burst into her bedroom in the morning to romp in her bed and tickle her, and he would chase her through the garden, sometimes with the Queen joining in, tackling her to the ground and tickling her there as well. One time, they tackled her in the garden and cut up her morning gown, the one she donned for her father's death. There was some investigations later on into what exactly happened during this time period, but not enough evidence exists to say clearly what it was, and so the relationship remains forever a mystery. It was reported, however, that Elizabeth started to wake up earlier in the morning so that she was dressed and ready to go for the day by the time Sir Thomas came to her room to rouse her, suggesting that she was uncomfortable with the situation. At some point, her stepmother, either out of jealousy or because she felt it was in Elizabeth's best interest to leave, asked her to leave the household. Between this time and Catherine's death several months months later when she gave birth, she and Elizabeth did maintain communication through letters. Catherine gave birth to a little girl named Mary, in which she died in childbirth, and Mary lived at least for several years, but then her whereabouts became a mystery as well, possibly because she died in childhood. So here we have another of Elizabeth's motherly figures gone from her life too soon. Shortly after this, Thomas began asking for Elizabeth's hand in marriage, and she turned him down. So he then decided to take matters into his own hand and began to plot to abduct the king, marry the king to Elizabeth's young cousin, Jane Grey, and then wed Elizabeth himself. Of course, this gained attention and her brother wondered if she was now not loyal to him, if she'd been part of this plot, and this put Elizabeth's life in mortal danger. Her servants were arrested, and she was held under house arrest. And at this point, her relationship with her brother, which had been fairly close, uh, began to suffer. She was forbidden to attend court, and she was eventually excluded from the succession along with her sister Mary. When her brother died at a young age, a coup in in which their cousin Lady Jane Grey, who had been added to the succession in place of Mary and Elizabeth, was named Queen. I'm going to add a shameless plug right now and say if you'd like to know any more history in this particular area, you can read my story, Prisoner of the Queen. Jane only lasted on the throne for nine days before Mary's army marched in and took the throne for her. Elizabeth was invited to ride with her sister when she made her triumphant ride through London, but their differences soon caused problems and Mary grew suspicious of her sister. Namely, she believed that Elizabeth wanted to take her throne from her. And this case was not helped by the fact that Thomas Wyatt started a rebellion to put Elizabeth on the throne. Though she denied participating, Mary didn't believe her and imprisoned her sister in the Tower of London, the very same place that Elizabeth's mother Anne Boleyn had been imprisoned before she was executed. Elizabeth feared for her life as the Queen's advisors pushed her to execute her sister. I can't imagine what a terrifying time this might have been for her to be sitting there knowing that her mother had died in the same place and that she was now under suspicion for trying to take over her sister's throne and death was on the line. The lack of evidence and Wyatt's confession of Elizabeth's innocence helped to somewhat clear her name, though her sister did not fully trust her. She was released from the tower, but she was taken as prisoner to Woodstock Manor, where she remained for a year before returning to her childhood home at Hatfield House. Hey, history lovers, Eliza here. We're interrupting today's happy hour to let you know that Lori and I host another fascinating podcast with our friend, Brenna Ash. Hey there, this is Brenna. Crime Feast is a true crime podcast hosted by three friends who are obsessed with all things crime. 
Each week, join Brenna, Eliza, and I as we serve up a platter of murders, mayhem, missing persons, tragedies, and more. Feast on notorious tales ripped from today's headlines and resurrected from the past. Until then, stay safe out there. We don't want you on the menu next. Now, back to the show. Cheers! At Mary's husband's request, Elizabeth was named heir for his own political reasons, as the next in line would have been Mary, Queen of Scots, and this would not have done well for Mary's husband, who was Spanish, if the French got involved, because Mary, Queen of Scots at this time was uh, aligned with the French. On November 17th, 1558, Mary died, making Elizabeth the new Queen of England. I could go on for hours about Elizabeth, but I'm running out of time, so I shall now regale you with stories of her many engagements, none of which came to fruition. Immediately upon taking the throne, the question on everyone's tongue was who would Elizabeth marry? There were numerous proposals, but Elizabeth did not accept them. It could be said that one of the reasons Elizabeth never married was she saw what went on around her. Catherine of Aragon was pushed aside and died alone. Her own mother was executed. Her next stepmother died in childbirth. The next one was executed. And then Catherine Parr also died in childbirth. It is also said that the man she truly loved, Robert Dudley, she could not marry. He was already wed. When his wife died in 1560 under mysterious circumstances, Dudley was implicated. He was not in attendance at the house where she was staying, but it was thought he might have ordered her murder so he could marry the queen. However, it was also assumed that Robert would have been smart enough not to consider or sanction such an act as it would look badly upon him and then disrupt any notions he may have had of marrying Elizabeth in the first place. Another speculation is that the death was ordered by William Cecil, Elizabeth's great spy, who did not want the queen to marry Robert. He was also falling out of favor with with Robert rising, and he could have ordered it to ruin Robert's chances and bring himself back into favor, which is exactly what happened. But there is no evidence to prove that theory either. At any rate, Amy, Robert Dudley's wife, was ill a lot of the time, and it is now suspected that she had cancer or porous bones. So she could have really just fallen and broken her neck. On the day of her death, Amy insisted on all the servants going to a fair, even though it was Sunday. Some say she was also so depressed at being ignored by her husband that she threw herself down the stairs committing suicide. Robert sent someone to the estate to report the circumstances Samson's back to him, but he did not attend her funeral. Although he was cleared, the scandal it would have caused if Elizabeth had married him was far too great. He was also the son of Northumberland, who had been executed for treason, and he himself had been put in the tower for a short time with the Jane Grey situation. So, upon his proposal of marriage to Elizabeth, and saying to her that she needed a mate, she responded with, I will have here but one mistress and no master. If that's not saying she doesn't want to marry, I don't know what is. For multiple decades, Elizabeth was able to play her pursuers and gain alliances and wealth just from the possibility of marriage. At this time, Elizabeth gave a speech to Parliament in which she declared she would not marry. In fact, she said, I have already joined myself in marriage to a husband, namely the Kingdom of England, and behold the pledge of this my wedlock and marriage with my kingdom. So another of Elizabeth's suitors was the Duke of Anjou, brother to the King of France. Negotiations went on for about a decade. She really strung him along, didn't she? She nicknamed him her frog. It was widely an unpopular choice for her to marry him. And also during this time, she found out that Dudley had married her cousin, Latisse Nolis, widow of Robert Devereux. Latisse was the daughter of Catherine Carey, who was the daughter of Mary Boleyn, a mistress of Henry VIII, and sister to Anne Boleyn, Elizabeth's mother. So, her cousin. Portraits of Latisse are often fused with Elizabeth. Is it any wonder that if Dudley couldn't have Elizabeth, he may have chosen her lookalike? Elizabeth banned 
banned her favorite from court and never again accepted Latisse at court either, nicknaming her the She-Wolf. It was also at this time another secret marriage by Robert was brought to light, that of Lady Sheffield. He denied the marriage, but Lady Sheffield had a child and named him Robert Dudley in 1573. Lucky for him, it could never be proved since Queen Elizabeth threatened to have him rot in the tower if it had been true. During her lifetime, Elizabeth had about 26 different marriage proposals to consider, of which five of the suitors had multiple proposals, and the Duke of Anjou's would take up about a decade of time. She was proposed to by Philip II, King of Spain, Prince Eric of Sweden, and the Archduke Charles, son of Emperor Ferdinand, the son of John Frederick, Duke of Saxony, the Earl of Arran, the Earl of Arundel, Sir William Pickering, and so many more. Elizabeth's council was good at stringing the men along while weighing in on their options and taking advantage of what they could in the form of making alliance, etc., that would gain the kingdom favor. So, did Elizabeth have lovers, or was she really the virgin queen as she was named? Was Robert Dudley ever her lover? Elizabeth denies that they were ever anything more than friends. In fact, she points out that how could anything circumspect ever happen when she was surrounded by people and eyes that were always watching? Although after making that proclamation, she said, although if I had the will, I do not know of anyone who could forbid me. So that shall also remain quite a mystery. Many of the courtiers of England and foreign princes flirted with Elizabeth and professed their love to her. Throughout her life, she would encourage them and even entertain them by engaging in similar behavior. Yet she would never commit to one person. Her anger at others for loving and marrying proved that she herself was jealous of what she'd forsaken. None of her ladies were allowed to marry without her permission, which was rarely granted. In one case, she made the couple wait 10 years before granting them leave to wed. Elizabeth died on March 24, 1603, having stayed true to her oath of never marrying. The throne then went to her nephew James, son of her cousin, Mary Queen of Scots, which united the two thrones. This is very interesting, considering that Mary, Queen of Scots, was one of her greatest rivals and whom she had executed during the earlier years of her reign. Now for some fun Elizabethan facts. Number one, Elizabeth, while Queen of England, rarely mentioned her mother. In fact, she did not even attempt to have her birth legitimized as her sister Mary I had done. Her father, Henry VIII, while he did put her in line for succession, had also claimed she was a bastard, as did her brother, Edward VI, after. With her reign tenuous in the beginning and threats and plots throughout, bringing light to the topic of her birth would have only made her own hold on her reign weaker. Many do not even believe she was Henry VIII's true daughter, despite their similar appearance and bearing. Number two, Elizabeth imprisoned many of her ladies when they dared to marry without her approval. Number three, suspicion to this day surrounds Elizabeth I and her role in the death of her longtime love, Robert Dudley's wife. Number four, Elizabeth's secretaries of state, Cecil and Walsingham, developed an intelligence agency and ring of spies that spanned all of Europe and more. Number five, Elizabeth had 40 pairs of velvet shoes until 1575, she decided to switch to Spanish leather. Don't panic, she didn't get rid of her shoes, simply had them refurbished. Number six, female characters in plays were played by men, not women. Number seven, Shakespeare became a popular playwright during the Elizabethan era, but in fact, it was very late into Elizabeth's reign. He was not even born until she'd been queen for several years. His first play was published and acted in the 1590s. Elizabeth did see at least one or two of his plays. Many vicious rumors abound that Elizabeth is Shakespeare's mother, but these are just rumors. Number eight, people drank beer at breakfast. Number nine, of every 100 babies born alive, not stillbirths, about 70% survived to their first birthday. Less than 50% would make it to the age of five. And number 10, saving the best one for last, farting and peeing were to be done in private. If you farted in public, you were supposed to try and cough to cover the sound. Belching at the table was totally acceptable, but if you had to blow your nose or spit, you had better turn away. Now, let us move on 
on to my dear William Wallace of Scotland. Many years ago, tired of the oppression upon his country, a man rose up from the shadows, one without a well-known name, seemingly from nowhere, and led his country in the Scottish Wars for Independence. That man is now a household name, or at least in my household, Sir William Wallace, a.k.a. Braveheart. He was alive during the end of the 13th century. There is not much known of Wallace in his earlier days. It is thought that he grew up in a family of means. They were landholders. Wallace would have been exposed to the sort of education that a lower gentry family would have. He'd have trained with a sword as well, which also explains why he was so great with wielding one. Comes with practice. No one is sure of his parentage, other than his father was either Alan or Malcolm Wallace, and his birth date is still unknown. However, it is believed he was in his 20s when he died. Through William's earlier childhood years, he was ruled by King Alexander III and was relatively peaceful. However, with the king's death in 1286, Scotland was thrown into turmoil. King Alexander's heir was a young girl who passed on her way to Scotland to sit upon her throne. In stepped King Edward of England, better known as Longshig. Brutality was about to begin as the English king sought to take control of the country and weed the Scots from their own lands. It is my guess that William was between the ages of 6 and 10 at this time, old enough to witness the new brutality and to remember a time when Scotland was ruled by its own people. At some point, Wallace joined up with Andrew Moray, another leader in the war, declaring his intentions to help lead the country to freedom. There is some speculation about his reason behind joining the revolt and a legend that whispers from one shore to the next of a wife or a love of his that was murdered by the English. There is no proof of this, but I like to believe it because it's romantic and softens the brutality of war and heightens our beliefs in the violence that must be unleashed. What is more likely is that William Wallace was devoted to his country. He remembered growing up in peace and wished for any children he might have to live the same way. He wanted the English king out and he wanted a Scots king in. His first act against the English was in May 1297 when he executed the High Sheriff of Lanark. My novel, The Highlander's Reward, in the Stolen Bride series, begins in September 1297 on the eve of the Battle of Stirling Bridge. Wallace would have been about 17 or 22 at this time. I'm leaning more toward the latter, which puts him at 29 at his death. My reasoning behind this is that he would have been a more seasoned warrior, more capable at age 22 rather than 17 of taking a leading role. I should note here too, and some of you may have also noticed this, the portrait depictions of Wallace often make him look much older, perhaps in his 40s even. The portraits done of him were made many years later and are quite misleading. Wallace is, however, described by contemporary accounts as being rather a giant of a man, perhaps 6'5 or 6'6 and well-muscled. It is probable that prior to the Scottish Wars for Independence that William Wallace had some military experience, but none are recorded. He and Moray were victorious. However, Moray died sometime later of the wounds he sustained during that battle. My hero, Magnus Sutherland was instrumental in helping the Scots to win this battle, and it's the first time he meets Wallace, but not the last. In fact, Wallace plays a part in many of my books, because I love him so much. Prior to Moray's death, he and Wallace were named the Guardians of Scotland. By the end of 1297, in early 1298, William Wallace was knighted by one of the leading Scottish earls, Lennox, Carrick, or Strathern. In 1298, Wallace lost the Battle of Falkirk against the English, but did not allow that to deter him. He gave over his guardianship of Scotland to Robert the Bruce, putting his full support behind the Bruce, but continued to play a part in the war for freedom. Unfortunately, Wallace would not live to see his dream of freedom realized. He was caught and subsequently executed by the English in 1305. His charge was treason against the crown. While he did not live to see it, the dream lived on and freedom reigned in 1328 until the next war, of course. That is William Wallace. This week, I've had the pleasure of reading Kate Quinn's book, The Huntress. I shall read to you what this story is about. 
about. In the aftermath of war, the hunter becomes the hunted. Bold and fearless, Nina Markova always dreamed of flying. When the Nazis attacked the Soviet Union, she risks everything to join the legendary Night Witches, an all-female night bomber regiment wreaking havoc on the invading Germans. When she is stranded behind enemy lines, Nina becomes the prey of a lethal Nazi murderess known as the Huntress, and only Nina's bravery and cunning will keep her alive. Transformed by the horrors he witnessed from Omaha Beach to the Nuremberg trials, British war correspondent Ian Graham has become a Nazi hunter. Yet one target eludes him, a vicious predator known as the Huntress. To find her, the fierce, disciplined investigator joins forces with the only witness to escape the Huntress alive, the brazen cocksure Nina. But a shared secret could derail their mission unless Ian and Nina force themselves to confront it. Growing up in post-war Boston, 17-year-old Jordan McBride is determined to become a photographer. When her long-widowed father unexpectedly comes home with a new fiancé, Jordan is thrilled, but there is something disconcerting about the soft-spoken German widow. Certain that danger is lurking Jordan begins to delve into her new stepmother's past, only to discover that there are mysteries buried deep in her family, secrets that may threaten all Jordan holds dear. That book was freaking amazing. You have to read it. I absolutely adored it. I gave it to my daughter. She's reading it now, and I've been recommending it to everyone I see. Time for a little sip of wine. And now I shall share with you a book of mine. This week I chose The Highlander's Gift because the ebook version of this novel is on sale this week, uh, March 19th through the 26th, for 99 cents. Betrothed to a princess until she declares his battle wound has incapacitated him as a man, Sir Neil Oliphant is glad to step aside and let the spoiled royal marry his brother. He's more than content to fade into the background with his injuries and remain a bachelor forever until he meets the Earl of Sutherland's daughter, alas, more beautiful than any other alas who makes him want to stand up and fight again. As daughter of one of the most powerful earls and highland chieftains in Scotland, Bella Sutherland can marry anyone she wants, but she doesn't want a husband. When she spies an injured warrior at the Yule Festival who has been shunned by the Bruce's own daughter, she decides a husband in name only might be her best solution. They both think they're agreeing to a marriage of convenience, but love and fate has other plans. Very exciting part about this book is that Bella is the daughter of my hero from the Highlander's Reward and a very good friend to William Wallace. So, one more sip to wet our palates with the nice bubbly. All right. This week's question from readers is, how do you go about doing research for your novels? This is a very loaded question because most of us authors who write historical fiction absolutely are obsessed with history. So we kind of study it for fun. I read a lot of nonfiction. I watch a lot of documentaries. I love going to museums. I love traveling to places with a lot of history and I love talking to other people about history. So for me, it's it's a lifelong interest. And when it comes to a book, I usually have an idea of what time period I'm looking for. And I'll try to research the current events of that time period, as well as any historical figures that could play a role or at least make a cameo in a book to make it more authentic. I really do try to make my stories very authentic to the time period because that's just really important to me. So I usually begin with some of the various research books that I have on hand in my office. I will also look online. There's a lot of information online you can find about the history of various 
places. And if I'm lucky enough, I will travel to a place where I'm, a story of mine is taking place, or I might be able to go see um, a museum exhibit or something along those lines that really helps me dive into the story. So that's a little bit about the research aspect behind the novel. It can take a long time, and I usually try to research before I write, and then there is a lot of research that happens during the writing part too, but to have a handle exactly on where I am and who my people might have known or what they might have been experiencing is really important from the start for me. And now I have a question to our readers. Why do you like to read historical novels? If you have any questions for us, you may email them to us at historybooksandwine at gmail.com. Our website is historybooksandwine.buzzsprout.com. We'll have the show notes for today's episode listed at that website as well. We can be found on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, Google, and Alexa. We're also on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you like what you heard today, please leave us a review. And remember, you can always send us questions at historybooksandwine at gmail.com. I hope you've enjoyed hearing about Elizabeth I of England and William Wallace of Scotland today. I really enjoyed sharing some historical facts with you guys about both of these people that I really admire and who I've tried to include in the stories that I write. Thank you so much for tuning in and cheers to you all. I hope you're enjoying your bubbly. Be sure to check out new episodes published weekly on Thursdays. Next up is Madeline and she will be talking about Henry VIII and Catherine the Great on March 28th. Lori will be speaking about Robert the Bruce and Mary, Queen of Scots, on April 4th. And our next happy hour will be April 11th, in which we bring surprise characters to the table and quiz each other on their historical facts in a fun sort of way where we may or may not make each other drink for wrong answers. So I hope you all have a great week and I look forward to talking with you again soon. Bye. <laughs>